We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Tuesday, October 23rd, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame, and coming up on today's show, we're going to have a very special guest. Our first four-star officer. You know, I'm just going to say general. He is a general. There's also four-star admirals. But General Joe Langell, United States Air Force, is the 28th Chief of the National Guard Bureau, sits on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's only the fifth, I believe, Chief of the National Guard Bureau to be a member of the Joint Chiefs. We're going to talk to the general about uh, what the uh, National Guard is doing these days, what the future holds for the organization, and yes, the difficulties that they are having in meeting their recruiting goals. It's a very interesting conversation I was able to have with him a couple days ago, and looking forward to playing that for you today. Really, uh, really fascinating conversation with General Joe Langell is coming up later on in the show. But now... Let's get to the headlines, the stories, the things that as a veteran I found interesting when I was looking at them last night and this morning. And this one actually popped up yesterday, shortly after we got off the air. And it's a story about a soldier based at Fort Polk named Logan T. Kyle, 22 years old. Uh, I don't know what his rank is, but I'm fairly certain he's about to be a big old E1 headed for confinement possibly for the rest of his life, because Logan T. Kyle, United States Army, was driving around town with his girlfriend. The girlfriend was actually driving the car. Her name was Sarah Parker, 24 years old, of Lake Charles. They've both been arrested. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, while Logan Kyle's girlfriend, Sarah Parker, was driving the car and Logan was in the passenger seat and Parker's two children, ages two and one years old, busy lady, uh, we're sitting in the back seat. They had another passenger. Logan Kyle's deceased wife was in the trunk of the car. Apparently, the police believe that they were driving around looking for a place to dispose of the body. They were not able to find one, and someone reported them and said there's a woman driving around with a body in her car. Uh, not the normal 911 call that you get, but the police responded to it. They pulled over Sarah Parker and found that, again, they had four people in the car and one in the trunk, and the one in the trunk, the wife of her boyfriend, Logan Kyle, serving at Fort Polk. He's been in for four years. He's been at Fort Polk for a couple of years. He's now in custody. Um, they're not relieving the wife's name or releasing the wife's name until uh, later on today, I believe. So what detectives believe that they've figured out so far is that Kyle actually killed his wife on Fort Polk and that he told the girlfriend, the girlfriend came, they put the body in the trunk, and they were driving around looking for some place to dispose of the body. Wow, that is something. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's certainly something. It takes a special kind of evil to kill your wife, of course, while you're having an affair, uh, then to call the person you're having the affair with to say, hey, let's dump my wife's body. This dumb young soldier 
evil young soldier. There's a lot of things you could call him, and really, soldier, I think he's about to lose that title for the rest of his life. He's about to also lose his freedom, hopefully, for the rest of his life. Did he not think anybody was going to come around asking questions about where his wife went? Did he not think the command might notice that his wife wasn't around anymore or his wife's family might notice that they weren't hearing from her anymore? How dumb can one be is the question. The answer, Logan T. Kyle, 22 years old, four years in the Army, having an affair, which, you know, how many of us served and saw someone who got married way too young? And this guy, he's 22 years old, doesn't say how long he was married, but says that he'd been at Fort Polk for a couple of years. Um, too many times I've seen things that went really off the rails because a bad relationship started. Uh, somebody meets you know, the first person who smiles at him, the first uh, gentleman or lady who smiles at him when they're on liberty at their first duty station. I, you know, they're, they're breaking out the engagement ring. Some of them seem to have that engagement ring on standby. Like they brought it with them to boot camp, put it in their stuff, brought it to their uh, AIT or A school, and then sprung that engagement ring on the first person to give them a smile. I mean, that happens, and it leads to bad things. Oftentimes, but in this case, oof, I mean, this is a murder and then an attempt to hide a body. And the two children of the girlfriend were in the car with them. Here's what I hope happens with this one. One, I hope the girlfriend and the guy, particularly the guy, because he's, uh, it seems quite clear, the one who is alleged to have done the killing, he should be gone for the rest of his life. The mother should be gone for a very, very long time for what she was trying to do. And those children should be taken as far away from both of them as possible. Yeah, it's their mother. I understand that. But if their mother's a sack of trash... Eh, do you really want those kids living with that mother? Do you want that mother to have any influence on their life? Or will they be better off getting a fresh start someplace? And at one and two years old, it's possible that they can get a fresh start someplace. So let's, uh, you know, that's what I'm hoping for. I was going to say let's hope, but I'm not going to tell you what to hope for. I'm only telling you what I think. And I think that the guy needs to go away for the rest of his life. And uh, that woman should not be anywhere near those kids. Just my thoughts. I mean, if you're a parent and you've got your two and one year old in the backseat while you're hauling a dead body of your boyfriend's wife around in your trunk, maybe you've lost the right to be a parent. Hey, that's just me. I guess I'm hardcore with things like that. Here's another story. This is being reported by the New York Post. Do you remember the pizza guy who was uh, basically taken into custody by ICE after delivering a pizza at an army base in, I think it was Brooklyn? Yeah, Brooklyn Army Base. Uh he turned out he had had a deportation order seven or eight years earlier, and they've released him two months after he was taken into custody by ICE to give him a chance to fight the deportation order. Seems to me he already had eight years to fight that deportation order, but hey, what do I know? I'm not a legal expert. So he goes to deliver uh, the pizza at Fort Hamilton, taken into custody by ICE. They found out, oh, hey, he had a deportation order eight years ago. We should probably now enforce that. He's married to an American citizen. However, he is not an American citizen, never went through the process, ordered deported. He was freed, again, to fight that deportation order. And now, well, guess what? He's been arrested again, collared for criminal mischief early Monday on Long Island, sent to a Nassau County detention center. New York Post is where I saw the story. NBC4 in New York also has it. Um, they are 
<laughs> there, this is going to be an interesting thing. Now, if he is taken into custody on a crime, is that not a good reason to reenact that deportation order? I don't know. Of course, the tie was that he went to uh, he went to the uh, Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn to deliver that pizza. That's the only military tie here. But I thought that was an interesting story where this guy was held up as somebody just trying to do a job. You know, he's married to an American and he should be given the chance. He had been given the chance for eight years and didn't do it. Uh, or you know, prior to that, you would assume, since he was ordered deported in 2010, has now been arrested for another crime, a misdemeanor. But hey, you know what? That's one more misdemeanor than I've ever been arrested for. I'm just saying. Mm, yeah. All right, let's take a look at some more of the direct veteran-involved, military-involved news. Call of Duty video games. Are you familiar with them? I am. Used to play them quite a bit, and then I uh, I prefer the Battlefield series more when I'm playing my first-person shooters. It's larger maps. There's vehicles involved. Uh, it's less uh, 10-year-olds screaming at you about how they just kicked your rear end. I know, that's basically what Call of Duty is these days. <laughs> 10, 10 to 12-year-olds telling you how awful you are at the game that you spent $60 on. Well, here's one good thing about Call of Duty, if the, uh, the, the trash-talking preteens and tweens are the worst thing. They have a new pack that you can buy for $5. Now, there are different things in these games that you can purchase that give you like a, a special uniform or a special weapon or something as simple as a special uh, 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 illustration that goes next to your, your player name when you're in the lobby getting ready to go into Call of Duty. Well, this one is called the Call of Duty Endowment Salute Pack, and it's actually raising money for a good cause. It's not just raising money for Activision and Blizzard, the companies that own the Call of Duty franchise. This is raising money for the Call of Duty Endowment, which is a nonprofit founded by Bobby Kotick, who's the CEO of Activision Blizzard, and it helps veterans find high-quality careers by supporting groups that prepare them for the job market and by raising awareness of the value vets bring to the workplace. Recently, they achieved their goal of placing over 50,000 veterans, and they did so two years before they planned to do it. Now they've set a new, more ambitious goal, and by 2024, so that's six years, they want to double that and place a total of 100,000 veterans. So you can purchase the pack through Call of Duty, the Salute Pack, and it's only $5, which, hey, how many dumb stuff, how many dumb things do you have in your house that you bought for $5 in the last month? You can do this if you're a gamer. It gets you a new character gesture, a gamer tag, a sticker, calling card, an emblem, basically all, um, what, what would you call them? Uh, beautification, aesthetic things for the games. It's not actually anything that's going to help you win the game. It's going to help you look a little bit cooler while you're playing it. And we all want to look cool, don't we? And look at me with my cool shirt and my, well, not so cool hat. Team is kind of garbage this year, but what are you going to do? All right. So through purchases like the Salute Pack and other things that Call of Duty uses to raise money for the Call of Duty endowment, they say, Dan Goldenberg specifically, he's the executive director of the endowment, says through in-game purchases like the Salute Pack, gamers have contributed millions towards our mission of helping veterans transition from military to civilian life and aiding veterans in finding meaningful employment. Those are good things. Those are important things. And despite the fact that, uh, you know, the newest uh, veteran numbers released by the census, which we talked about yesterday, show that veterans are actually making about $10,000 more a year on average than their never having served counterparts. 
uh, and there are less of us living in poverty. There are still a lot of us who are either unemployed or underemployed. Underemployment, I think, is actually the bigger issue than unemployment. Underemployment is when you've got a college degree and you are cleaning tables at a restaurant. Nothing wrong with that. It's a job. Uh, It's an honest day's work, but if you're qualified for something more that can improve your quality of life, that can get you closer to where you're going, how do you get to that spot? Well, organizations are out there working to help people, things like, oh, Hire Heroes USA or Hiring Our Heroes, two different organizations with kind of similar goals. They're out there working to help people and help veterans specifically find the right level of employment for them and get them into the jobs that they are qualified for and that would be best for them. But it's not free to do that. They need money. So you've got organizations like the Call of Duty Endowment who, let's be honest, they profit off of the military, right? That's what Call of Duty is. It's a military simulator. Same thing with Battlefield. They're military simulations, these games. Of course, arcade-like. It's not realistic. Although the Battlefield games are a little bit more realistic. Still, They're using the weaponry and they're using situations that are like uh, what a lot of people deal with in the military. It's nice to see an organization like Activision Blizzard and the Call of Duty Endowment giving back to the military community that, again, they've they've profited off of. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, and they they (laughs) they've uh, they've been very successful at it. The fact that they're doing something like this to raise millions of dollars to help vets find Uh, the right level of employment, or to just find a job for those who aren't uh, currently employed. It's really fantastic that they are doing that, and I'm really glad that they are. All right, let's uh, let's check out what's going on over at the VA. And, yeah, we talk about the VA a lot here, and no, it's not always good. There's a lot of problems at the VA, a lot of things that need to be dealt with and have needed to be dealt with for a long time. One thing that the VA is doing right now to address some issues, and it's not an issue caused by anything they're doing. It's an issue caused by something other folks are doing, bad folks specifically. That is pension poaching. Scam artists who target the elderly veterans, the older veterans who maybe aren't as technically savvy, maybe aren't uh, as aware of the scammers that are out there. Well, the VA is adding more protections to strengthen their ability to protect aging veterans from scammers who target their pensions, push them to apply for benefits that they aren't available or eligible to receive. These guys are known as pension poster, post poachers, and the scammers pose as advisors who then try to make money by selling elderly vets unnecessary financial services and products they don't need while convincing them to apply for VA benefits they probably will never see. In some of these cases, the people have actually set up a company that allows the veteran to to send some of their money to them. It's uh, evil, but it's also kind of genius, and it's something that, you know, the, the veterans out there, if you get contacted by someone and you're an elderly veteran, you're, you know, 80 years old, you served in Korea, you served in Vietnam, someone calls you, they know you're a veteran, they may be cold calling and just hoping you're a veteran, but if they know you're a veteran, they contact you and they say, oh, well, our records show that you need this. Yes, for me, that's going to be a red flag. Like, wait, where are you from? Who are you with? How did you know that I was a veteran? And why do I need these things? There are a lot of people, particularly the elderly, who are more susceptible to those sorts of suggestions. And we know that. It's a fact of life. It's one of those things. You know, uh, as you get older, I think part of it is when you get older, you assume that people aren't going to try to rip you off. You're going to assume they're going to be more respectful towards you. That'd be nice. 
It's not always the case, though. That's for sure. So what's the VA doing? Well, they put regulations into effect October 18th that guarantee the aid and attendance benefit for pensions will stay out of the hands of crooked financial planners. Uh, An Oregon senator, Democrat Ron Wyden, commended the move by the VA, saying these changes are long overdue, but a welcome step forward in the fight to protect our veterans from greedy scammers. It is imperative that veterans who need this benefit have access, and it's also imperative, in my opinion, that they're the only ones who have access to it, not some creepy financial planner. You know, these people who have basically made it their lives work to steal from other people's lives work. This issue was brought to Senator Wyden's attention after a 2012 undercover investigation by the Governmental Accountability Office identified more than 200 organizations nationwide that advise potential pension claimants to go after unnecessary benefits and charge the targets as much as $10,000 along the way. Yeah. Well, hey, g- give us $1,000 and we can get this done for you and then you'll get an extra $4,000 each year. All right, for a $1,000 initial investment, you're getting $4,000 a year. If you live for another 25 years, that's $100,000. Sounds good, right? Yeah, but then we're going to need through this $3,000 fee we found out. It just keeps adding up. You know how scams work. It's awful, and it's awful that it targets some of our more uh, susceptible veterans out there. The VA regulations include a provision from Senator Wyden that requires a three-year glance at an applicant's financial history when applying for the pension in extreme cases The VA rejected the targeted veterans for the benefit, but only after the poachers tucked away the assets in places that aren't easily accessible money-wise. So this is something that uh, can affect a senior vet's ability to qualify for Medicaid, other government assistance programs. It's good to see the VA is actually doing something about this. And again, one of those things that was kind of a long time coming, but hey, better late than never. That's what I always say. It's a new saying. I should trademark it. Better late than never. Dash, dash, Eric Dame, October 23rd, 2018. You're listening to The Morning Briefing from Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. One thing that we have here at the Intercom Washington, D.C. facility is a pretty good coffee station, coffee mess. We have, like, the world's biggest Keurig. It has, like, 70 different types of coffee you can get. You can have it make you a cappuccino and make you whatever the heck you want it to make you. And there are some coffee cups over there. We keep them up in a cabinet. It's, you know, take one, use it, bring it back, clean it. That's all. If you got some extra mugs at home, you can bring them in and donate them and all that good stuff. There's paper cups. Well, in the Air Force, (laughs) we've talked about this one before, but I don't know. How much do you expect a, a coffee cup to cost you? Like a, a coffee mug, a silly, like world's greatest dad coffee mug, a couple bucks, right? Let's say you go hardcore and you get the Yeti tumbler that's going to keep your coffee hot all day long. And it's like 20 ounces. So you got a, a good amount of coffee in there that's going to last even longer, right? Would you ever pay $1,280 for a, <laughs> a drink receptacle? Those Yeti tumblers are like 25 bucks and they're pretty amazing. I've got one. The Air Force is still under fire for throwing down $1,280 a piece to replace in-flight reheating cups after the handles break because apparently the handles break pretty often. Now, you would think that the United States Air Force would check into these $1,300 coffee cups and find out if, I don't know, the handles stay on them. They apparently did not, and these handles had a tendency to break off. So what the Air Force is doing now is saying, all right, 
We're not going to pay $1,300 for the coffee reheating thing. They have these special metal coffee mugs that plug into the planes and just bring your own, can't you? I don't know. Here's what they're going to do instead. And this just shows the the fraud, waste, and abuse that was in place with the $1,300 coffee cup. They say they're going to use 3D printing to get replacement handles made. Do you know how much the replacement handles are going to cost when it's 3D printed? 50 cents. 50 cents. So they're going to drop from paying $1,300 for these individual coffee reheaters down to 50 cents because they're going to use their own and they're not going to go outside of the Air Force. Why weren't you doing that in the first place, Air Force? You guys are supposed to be the smart ones. The highest ASFAB scores, recruiting offices are rarely ever open. Why Why was there nobody thinking like, hey, uh, couldn't, couldn't we make our own handles? Shouldn't there be, and I know there would be in the Navy, there would be a, uh, you know, this the first handle that broke on a chief's uh, coffee reheating thing. He'd figure out some way to put a temporary replacement one on there and get it fixed. Instead, the Air Force was just, yeah, we'll just buy another one for $1,300. This seems a lot for a, a coffee mug, but hey, what do I know? The fact that they've been able to get that $1,300 replacement cost down to $0.50 cents with simple 3D printing, one, shows you the amazing viability of the 3D printer when it comes to a number of applications, including apparently coffee cups, but it also shows how ridiculous it was that the Air Force was willing to do that. $1,280 each time, and how many of these do they have? Who knows? There are still some politicians who are looking pretty deep into this, including Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa, who, uh, according to the Air Force Times, is still wondering why they're necessary in the first place. Again, I just told you, a Yeti cooler, the little tumbler, got it from my mom this summer as a gift. Thing is fantastic. Keeps my coffee hot for hours. Costs like $25. Why didn't the Air Force just buy some of those? Why didn't the Air Force reach out to Yeti and see if they could get a deal? You know? I'm sure Yeti would like to be able to say, oh, yeah, the official coffee tumbler of the United States Air Force. That would be fantastic. Instead, the cups were costing $1,300 for replacing them. So in an October 2nd letter to Air Force Secretary Heather Wilson, Air Force Times reports that Grassley said that 25 replacement cups have been bought this year alone for a total of roughly $32,000. It's it's mind-boggling. A coffee mug. Again, these Yeti tumblers, 25 bucks. Uh, you can get a cheaper version than that from other companies. You've got regular coffee mugs that cost a buck or two. Why were we spending $32,000 on 25 replacement cups? <laughs> the 60th Aerial Port Squadron, so just one unit at Travis Air Force Base in California, spent nearly 56000 to replace broken cups over the past three years. $20,000 a year basically, for one squadron at Travis Air Force Base. That's where the budget uh, shortfall is coming from in the military. That's where, I mean, is was this uh, uh, when they put through the uh, the, def- the defense financing uh, bill recently when they signed into to law the military budget? Did they account for these cups? Uh, the, the Each cup cost taxpayers $693 in 2016, but now they're up to $1,300. Grassley's quote to Air Force Times is great. 
Paying nearly $700 for a single cup is bad enough, but it's simply beyond reason to continue to pay ever-increasing prices for something as simple as a coffee cup that is so fragile that it needs to be constantly replaced. This latest example of reckless spending of taxpayer dollars gives me no confidence that the Air Force is taking real steps to reduce wasteful spending practices. These are their coffee cups. How... How likely do you think it is that there's other things out there that they're spending just as much on or more, which might be just as as pointless, just as easy to procure for less money? Somebody likes these cups, apparently, or somebody knows someone who works for the company at the cups. They're only used on a, a small number of aircraft, actually. 59 KC-10s, 52 C-5s, the Galaxy, and 222 C-17s. Um, with the planes aging and the average KC-10 at 34 years old, apparently it's harder and harder to find replacement parts for those aircraft, including the cup heaters. <laughs> 391 of those cups since 2016 have been purchased by the Air Force for $326,000. Not much more to say about it than that. You're listening to the morning briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Coming up over our next two segments, a conversation with General Joseph Langell. He is the 28th Chief of the National Guard Bureau. He sits on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I had the opportunity to talk to the general about the current status of the National Guard, all of the work that they're doing around the globe, including within the country, responding to things like hurricanes, Florence and Michael and other natural disasters, as well as what the future of the National Guard is. Will they play a role in the Space Force? Stay right here. You're going to find out from 28th Chief of the National Guard, United States Air Force General Joseph Langell. It's coming up on the morning briefing right after this. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is our slogan, and it's what we do. And I'll tell you why we do it. It's because each and every member of our team either knows what it's like to have worn the uniform or is very close to someone who did. And when I say very close, I mean the spouse of someone serving in the Army, the child of someone serving in the Air Force. We have all of those perspectives on our team, and we are using them to try and get you the information that you need, the benefits that are available to you, and oh so much more. We're doing it each and every day on ConnectingVets.com. And, of course, you can follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We are now joined by a very special guest. In fact, while we've had members of Congress, we've had senators and congressmen and women on the show, we've had generals on the show, admirals on the show, we have never had someone who is serving on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But right now, we're going to end that <laughs> that gap in having someone who did that as we welcome General Joseph Langell to the show. He is the 28th Chief of the National Guard Bureau. General, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Eric. I'm fine and uh, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we're absolutely glad to have you, and we're going to talk about a, a lot of things as they relate to your position and the current status of the National Guard. But before that, I just want to talk to you a little bit about your time in service. You've got over three decades in uniform. We're not going to go through the list of all your commands because that would take the entire 25 minutes that we have for this segment just about. <laughs> but if someone comes up to you and asks you, you know, how would you describe to them your years serving in the United States Air Force? Well, I think I would start with, uh, you know, kind of on your intro. I started off as a kid, uh, the son of an Air Force officer. I've, I mean, I've been in the military, if you count my family time, my entire life. 
And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I started off uh, when I joined myself after college. I went through ROTC and I joined the United States Air Force, became an F-16 pilot and served uh, all around the world, really, in uh, in the active Air Force. And uh, I liked it very, very much. Um, but, uh, you know, as my family life and, uh, you know, uh, situation changed there, as I got about 10 years active duty, I decided that uh, moving into the uh, reserve component, more more likely the National Guard, uh, was, a, was a better fit for me. Um, and so I did that, and that was 27 years ago. And, uh, you know, I had a civilian career along with that, working for Delta Airlines and working for uh, the Air National Guard as an F-16 pilot in Texas. Enjoyed it very, very much, uh, multiple deployments, and did all the things I like to do as the Air Force. Still got to do the, the best thing, which is hang around other people who are in the military who, who share the commitment and wear the uniform. Um, and then, uh, you know, later in my career, uh, post, uh, post 9-11, uh, decided to take on uh, the full-time military thing again and started moving around the world and had some great assignments, uh, you know, in Europe and in Egypt and and uh, ultimately now back in the Pentagon uh, serving our great 450,000 men and women uh, who serve our National Guard every single day. So it's been a, it's been a great run for me and I, I've enjoyed it very much. I certainly never expected to be here where I'm at now or had a plan to be here, but. The ability to serve and perhaps influence and make it easier or better for for currently serving members uh, in the National Guard and the Reserves and really in the military in general uh, has been a real uh, a real honor for me to be part of. You know, General, one of the things that everyone from uh, basic airmen up to four-star general like yourself has in common in their military career, it comes to an end for everybody in one way or another, at one point or another. With you having over three decades in, you're closer to the end of the career than the beginning, uh, much closer to the end, I would say. Yeah, I think uh, so. What are you thinking about that? Are you looking forward to it? Are you a bit apprehensive about it? I know that we all assume that those wearing stars on their shoulders are, are going to be okay, but is it a time that, that is uh, is causing any self-doubt for you or any apprehension? Um, you know, I, I think that uh, like all of us who serve and continue to serve and have the opportunity uh, to see what we do and what the men and women serving in our nation do every day, it's an honor to serve. And so there's certainly some reluctance about the end of it. But as you said, it, it comes... It comes to the end uh, for everyone, and and uh, you know I, I think um, I'm proud of what the the piece of the service that I've been part of. I I uh, you know be, being a guardsman and and being on military leave from Delta Airlines, I'm not worried about employment. Delta has been very good and supported my military career as a guardsman, and so uh, you know if I'm not worried about uh, getting a job when I'm out, I I, I think I'll be just fine uh, doing that stuff. But you know everybody uh, you know everybody I talk to who is out of uniform. Uh, they miss working daily on on such focused, mission focused, selfless with such selfless people that uh, you know it, it does come to an end. But you make a transition and you move on, and you know I'll do that when the time comes in a couple of years from now. We're speaking to General Joseph Langell. He's the 28th Chief of the National Guard Bureau. Let's talk about that position. It's one that I think uh, not all that many are deeply familiar with. So, what are your duties as the Chief of the National Guard Bureau, and what are the things that you've prioritized to focus on during your time in that position? So, yeah, my uh, you know my job as the Chief of the National Guard Bureau is to uh, essentially um, you know do uh, do several things. One is um, we are the channel of communications from the Department of Defense to the 54 states, territories in the District of Columbia, uh, National Guards. And as you know, those are a non-federal entity that reside under command and control of the governors. That's that's what makes our piece of, of the military a little bit different is we can be mobilized both by the President of the United States and by the governors uh, from which states we come. And uh, just much like 
There are 4,500 Florida and Georgia National Guardsmen who are mobilized today in response to Hurricane uh, Michael that just went through the panhandle of Florida and southern Georgia. And then, so that's a kind of unique thing. So first thing is I, I, I convert what the Pentagon needs them to do into state and and uh, and uh, non-federal uh, policies and guidance that, that work for the 54. That's, that, that's kind of the first thing. Second thing I do is, is I make sure that they spend the federal dollars because the first thing we do in the National Guard is, is we train uh, for our wartime mission sets. The, you know, as part of the United States Army and part of the United States Air Force, it's important that uh, our training is focused on delivering the combat capabilities that our services require when they when the president mobilizes us and sends us to war. And, and, and as of today, right now, as I'm talking to you, we have about 30,000 uh, 30, uh, National Guard troops who are mobilized in support of uh, federal missions uh, around the world. And um, and so that's uh, that's uh, the second thing. And, and the third thing I do is, as a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, like like the other members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, it's, it's my job to provide best military advice uh, through the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to the Secretary of Defense and the President. Uh, and, uh, and and that's what I do, like uh, like all other members of the Joint Chiefs. So um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a very interesting job. It's still... You know, it is relatively new. I'm the newest member of the Joint Chiefs, but uh, I love it, and I feel honored to be able to have it. When it comes to the National Guard, what are the biggest issues that the Guard is facing? Is it all recruitment and retention? Is it uh, mission pace? I mean, wh- what are the biggest challenges that are facing the Guard currently as you see them? So I think, um, you know, we are a different force than the one I joined 27 years ago. Um, you know, fundamentally, the National Guard uh, has gone through phases. We are the, the oldest military institution. Institution We've been around since 1636 um, when, uh, you know, we weren't sophisticated. We didn't have common weapons. We didn't have uh, standardized training. Obviously, we, we migrated that into the 20th century here where we became a, a, a strategic reserve, you know, big part of World War One, big part of World War Two. Um, but we were kind of a, a you know, call up when break glass in case of emergency force. Since 9/11, we have transformed into transformed into what we call an operational force, an operational force that is routinely and regularly part of operational uh, mission sets going on around the world, where, wherever it is. And you know, those 30,000 folks that I talked to you about, we're in every combatant command on every continent um, on the globe. And so, um, you know, the, the the biggest challenge for us has been that transformation to an operational force. And it has been uh, it's been a good thing for the country. I think it's been a good thing for the Department of Defense, because you have now a very capable, very well equipped, very disciplined force that can bring real combat capability to the battle space, and and, and we do it at a at a lower cost because the preponderance of our force uh, is part time. Has another manner in which they earn uh, the majority of their compensation from besides the federal government. And, and that's a good thing for America. So there's challenges in that. It takes time to be ready. It takes time to train. Uh, these are sophisticated new weapon systems that we have. And, and so for our part-time soldiers and airmen, um, you know, when, you, when you're dedicating, uh, you know, the old model of 39 days a year just doesn't apply anymore. And I mean, we, the, the one weekend a month and two weeks a year is, is out there is, is still the statutory requirements for a guardsman, for a reservist. But but uh, really, to be the combat force that we've become in many pieces of our force, it takes much more time, much more training. And folks are using 50 and 60 and 70 days of training a year, which is a challenge for us. 
it's a challenge for them, but along with the uh, the guardsmen and women that are serving, of course, the change in role and the change in readiness is going to have an impact on them, which means it's also going to have, have an impact on their families, on their civilian employers, for those who have a career outside of the Guard. Uh, what is the Guard doing to address those issues, the familial issues, and of course, the big issues that civilian employers have where they can lose an employee for uh, greater periods of time under this new uh, strategy using the Guard? So, you know, I think... Uh You've hit on on kind of the crux of it here. So, you know, as the chief, because of this operational force that we become, uh, you know, my priorities have been readiness of the force. And I just described to you the training requirements of that and why we're doing that. Then people, people, those 450,000 men and women uh, who serve every day uh, is, uh, you know, that that includes their families and that includes their employers. Our business model fundamentally requires that we retain the support of the of the families and the uh, employers, and, and as you know, and you know, when you deploy, if you live in a that doesn't happen to have uh, military medical facilities nearby, and you know, and and you're you're used to an employer provided insurance program that you lose when you deploy for a year to uh, Afghanistan or to the Middle East someplace, um, you know, now you have to transition to the military provided healthcare system, the Tricare system, and. And that is not always easy, and there's always issues with, you know, will providers take that health care? Do you have special needs children on already established provider networks? And so over the past 17 years of war in the Middle East, we've gotten much, much better at making that uh, connection happen, making that transition from a part-time guardsman to a full-time serving uh, airman or soldier. Uh, but that has been a challenge for us. So, you know, and the, and the employer piece is, you know, and, and we, we owe them – you know, the, the predictability that goes with uh, the reserve components. So while we say we're going to be a operational force, um, you know, in the old days, uh, they would use all of the active component force structure. And when they ran out, they started going to the reserve components and, and adding in the reserve components. And now we have kind of shifted to a model of taking what uh, known deployments might be out there and posturing reserve component formations and capabilities against things that we know we have to do. And, and they're all around the world. We have forces in the Sinai routinely rotating in and out of the Sinai for the multinational force and observer mission there that's since been the Treaty of Peace with Israel and Egypt. Um, Kosovo has had a recurring re- deployment. So as they posture our forces against that, one, it keeps us a ready force. It keeps us motivated to train and deploy. And two, it's something we can plan on. It's something we can share with the employers on a timeline that allows them to know when their employers are going to be gone. So... I think that's an important aspect of how we have adapted as an operational force uh, over time. We're speaking with General Joseph Langell, the 28th Chief of the National Guard Bureau. Now, General, you and I both know that the soldiers, airmen, sailors, and Marines, they see someone with stars on their shoulder, and they are a little bit reticent at times to address the issues that they're facing, bring up their complaints, their concerns. Military families usually do not have that same reticence. So what are the military families in particular telling you about the difficulties that they're facing or what they'd like to see addressed when it comes to the Guard? Well, in, in terms of families telling us, uh, you know, issues, it's they 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 want, uh, you know, they would prefer to have a, a more stable um, access to health care. I think uh, one of their top issues is finding a way, if we can, to find, um, you know, TRICARE, uh, you know, Reserve Select being able to be available and perhaps evenly even funded for, um, you know, the reserve component in uh, uh, across the board. And of course, it's, that's, uh, there's a bill that goes with that. I mean, the good news is, luckily, most uh, members serving in the military are relatively healthy. 
Um, but, uh, you know, access to continuous health care so you don't have to tra- transition from one to another is, is a constant ask, um, you know, from our from our uh, uh, our families out there. Another one might be, um, you know, is, uh, you know, I, I, there are some clearly that uh, that question the, hey, this this is the reserve commitment. And, and sometimes, you know, family members uh, serving in the military tend to want to volunteer and deploy to go someplace and. And uh, they're doing deployments and they're doing very important things around the world. For instance, a, a presence mission in the in the uh, in the Pacific, whether you're deployed to Thailand or whether you're deployed to the Philippines or whether you're deployed over there so that you can work with our allies and partners, which is one of Secretary Mattis's prime lines of effort inside the national defense strategy is uh, sometimes they don't see the connection between the importance of that strategic presence mission uh, that might not be. Uh, in Afghanistan or in Iraq. So it's conveying to them the importance of what the role we play now as this operational force across all mission sets, um, not just engaged kinetically, perhaps in in, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. The military is having recruiting issues. This is something that uh, has been acknowledged by each branch of the service. It has to do with a number of factors. The stress put on by multiple deployments. You've got uh, the lack of physical fitness among the recruiting pool. Uh, How is the Guard dealing with the military recruiting issue that that I assume is facing you just as it's facing each other branch of the service? You're exactly right, Eric. Recruiting is uh, is really one of our top priorities uh, right now, and and that leads directly to readiness. If you can't fill out your formations and find appropriate people who are fit and qualified and trained and ready to go, then you aren't part of the United States Army and part of the United States Air Force that they need. And and so on the air side, on the in the Air National Guard this year, we we exceeded our recruiting goals and we made the end strength uh, allocated to us by the Air Force. Uh, on the Army side, and like all of the Army components, the active, the reserves, and, and the National Guard, we failed to recruit the number of people we needed, um, and that's a problem. So I, th- I think uh, we are uh, you know, trying to get our brand out there. We feel like we need to make sure people understand exactly what it is that they're signing up for, that they have an opportunity to serve in the Guard, not only at home, uh, but around the world. And I, I'll tell you, you know, the, the Homeland mission is, is something that is unique to us while well, when we have uh, devastating emergencies, everybody pitches in, all components, all services, everyone. But as I was down there in Panhandle, Florida last week, and I saw the National Guard delivering food and delivering water and delivering, del- delivering supplies to these folks who were just absolutely devastated by Hurricane Michael, I mean, there was a real sense of service to the community that is meaningful. It's meaningful to a lot of people. It's meaningful to the people of the community who appreciated it. Uh, very, very much that, you know, in this devastation, there is someone out there that has the capacity and the capability still to make sure that we're doing okay. And a lot of people want to be part of that. As you mentioned, the, the domestic front is one that the National Guard is unique in the military and how they respond to issues like hurricanes. Michael, of course, hitting Florida just this past week. Uh, before that, we had Florence in the Carolinas. And actually, uh, the lone uh, Guard member on our staff, Kayla Jackson, she was activated to go down to North Carolina for that. Uh, it's been a busy couple of years uh, since uh, since uh, you know since we started here at Connecting Vets on the domestic front. Uh, how is that going for the Guard? Is that something that uh, we've been able to deal with positively as far as what seems to be an increase in these events that we need to mobilize the Guard for? Um, yeah, you know, it is, it is something that, uh, we plan for, we do it's, it, it is, let me stress first that, you know, the response to any domestic response is always a, 
a team effort. And it's a team effort from the, the first and local responders who own the immediate response piece, uh, augmented by the National Guard, augmented by all of the you know federal installations that happen to be around who come out of their gates and save people's lives and, and do things regardless of what service they're in. Um, you know, combined with a, a really well-coordinated and synchronized effort by U.S. Northern Command, whose charge is to synchronize all the military activity, DOD activity, uh, in support of FEMA and DHS and the first responders. And, and I think that we really have gone a long way towards refining that process. And, and it's played out very, very well. And this last Hurricane Florence and current Hurricane Michael was really, really seamless. So, you know, my thanks to Kayla for deploying down to the service of her governor or state. So she was with uh, in North Carolina about 7,000 other guardsmen uh, in North Carolina and South Carolina, Carolina that, that responded to that. And, you know, I think it's, uh, it is a unique piece of what we do. We, we plan for it. We're in the communities. I, as I was in uh, Panhandle of Florida this past week, I went to several armories who there were guardsmen postured inside those armories uh, right there in Panama City, Florida, waiting for passage of the hurricane so they could run out the doors and, and help police officers and firefighters and communicators and first responders and rescue people. And uh, their own facilities and their own homes were, uh, in fact, demolished by that hurricane. So, um, you know, we, we are there. That Our presence across all of the nation in 2,600 communities allows us to be there at the point of impact from any disaster. What, what, whatever it is, whether it's a fire or a tornado, a hurricane, you know, we're in the response business and we coordinate with first responders, the people who are charged with making sure that you have an organized response on the ground at the scene and they know us and they know what capabilities we bring and uh, really a, a thing of beauty to watch inside an emergency operations center. Anywhere you go at any kind of emergency, you'll see these people know each other. They've partnered, they're integrated. And um, it is a, a, a great way to speed uh, the saving of lives and, and, and mitigate uh, the suffering of people when, event, when these kind of events happen. We're speaking with General Joseph Langell, United States Air Force, the 28th Chief of the National Guard Bureau. You mentioned it earlier, you sit on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The Chief of the National Guard Bureau is a fairly recent addition to the Joint Chiefs. Tell us exactly what you do uh, on the, the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and also, what's it like being on the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Something that I can't imagine you could have predicted earlier on in your career. No, I certainly couldn't have predicted it, and, um, you know, I think... Uh, it is, uh, it's, it's a great honor for me to be part of that group that, um, you know, advises the most senior civilian leaders in our, in our nation. And, um, you know, that is, in effect, what members of the Joint Chiefs do is they provide best military advice so that civilian leaders in our nation can make decisions on, on what they believe is the, is the best option and the best uh, um, thing for the nation to do for our national security. And, and so all members of the Joint Chiefs do that. They're a bunch of, of really smart uh, Individuals that I work with representing uh, the Joint Chiefs from all of the services. And, um, you know, like you say, it is new. And, uh, you know, I think we're still in the process inside the National Guard Bureau of developing a staff that can su- that can support uh, and and develop the knowledge. And, um, you know, so you can add value. You want to be an add, an add value piece. The piece that I bring that's different from the other members is I've that connection to a non-federalized piece of the force which is a big piece. I mean, we have 2 million folks about serving in the military. That's all the services, all the reserve components. And as uh, you mentioned in your opening remarks, the National Guard is more than 20% of that at 450,000 people. So for me to be able to convey the impact, the availability, the issues with readiness of the force, 
um, is uh, is quite an honor for me to do, and I, I've enjoyed it very much. Of course, being non-federal means the Guard has to deal with the individual states. And, of course, uh, anyone familiar with the National Guard knows how it's set up under each state, having control of, uh, of their National Guard forces. There's also a program called the State Partnership Program, which a lot of people are calling one of the best return on investments DOD has had. What can you tell us about State Partnership Program, what it is, and how it benefits the Guard and those states? So the State Partnership Program, it, it is indeed, I think it's grown uh, beyond the, the wildest dreams of those who started it 25 years ago. Um, you know, it, we now have uh, partners between individual states and and nations, uh, for 81 nations. Um, and, uh, you know, it's designed, it started off with, uh, you know, 10 initial countries that were part of the former Soviet Union, where we wanted, wanted to begin nations with them. We wanted to begin to connect and build relationships that's the real commodity of the state partnership program but over time it has become a program where we have kind of ramped up the training that we do we actually generate some readiness in our forces we generate interoperability in our forces and um, we have deployed together some 80 times a partner nation has deployed uh, with us to some contingency around the world afghanistan iraq or peacekeeping operations somewhere around the world where they have actually deployed as part of a deployment of their National Guard from their state partnership. It is a relatively inexpensive program. We spend, you know, about $30 million on events, which um, there's not many places where you could say $30 million is a small amount of money, but in the Department of Defense realm, um, <laughs> those kinds of, of dollars are, are relatively small uh, for the benefits that we get. And, and, and we create friends, and we, we strengthen alliances, and we build trust between nations and governments and states and we it, it gives us increased access and should we need it perhaps basing opportunities and it just it, it shows us as the united states uh to uh, our partner nations and we do all the things that we do in the guard we show about utilization of of the military uh, for the good of the communities how to use it to to react to disasters and how do you we teach them about search and rescue and how we do domestic operations, whether it's floods or, or firefighting or, or uh, hurricanes or earthquakes. Um, we show them some of the capabilities that we have, and they share their capabilities and techniques with us. And so we, we get, uh, I think, as much uh, from these partnerships as our um, partner nations do, at least we hope. You know, we line them up sometimes with uh, there's usually some connection between the country uh, and and the partner, whether it's a large population that happens to live uh, from like Poland and Illinois, for instance, or Lithuania and Pennsylvania, a lot of Lithuanians live in Pennsylvania, and and so there's a natural connection there that that starts it off as a very strong partnership, and and people have a, a connection that they can build on, and so this has been going on for 25 years. We're gonna add we're gonna add two new partners this year. We're gonna add uh, Tanzania and Nepal uh, will be new partners that we add in the in the next year time frame, and so it's a very very successful program. We're very very proud of it. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is the slogan, and that's where we're doing it right there at ConnectingVets.com, and also on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Each and every member of our team is working diligently every day to get you the news that you should know, that you want to know, that you need to know. So give us a follow at Connecting Vets on social media and also visit the website, ConnectingVets.com, like 
40, 50, 60 times a day. The boss isn't looking at your search history. Come on, just visit. Go, go. <laughs> All right, now back to our conversation with General Joseph Langell. He is the 28th Chief of the National Guard Bureau. He is a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I asked him about, you know, the wonderful programs that the Guard is running and whether they are easier or more difficult because the Guard has to deal with the individual states. Do you think it makes it easier or more difficult for the National Guard as an organization than, say, uh, the active duty Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force uh, to get things like this done? Does it do you do you notice a sense of cooperation between the individual states and the DOD or is it sometimes uh, difficult because you might have people butting heads that they disagree a bit more? No, I tell you, you know, and and while we as the National Guard are are kind of the executors of the state partnership program with our partner, partner nations, what we actually do with them is uh, very well synchronized and coordinated by, one, what the country team wants, what the ambassador in that country feels uh, is kind of the best sort of capabilities we need to develop. And then they work in conjunction with um, the combatant command. So in Europe, they use UCOM, and they have a, have a larger plan that state partnership is just a piece of but whether it's exercises and like everything that the state partnership does with and in and through uh, the partner nations is all very well coordinated and very well vetted and approved by not only the the country team and the ambassador herself or herself uh, but also the combatant command and the army component and the air component it's all very very well synchronized so it's not we're not really going in there as a state and deciding what we want to do uh, although sometimes the states, because of their closeness and their relationship with the people in the country, will get requests, which we can then work through UCOM or the combatant command, and and then we can then execute. So it's not a, it is not a uh, you know 54 everybody for themselves program. It's very well synchronized and coordinated and really owned by the combatant commanders. One of your top priorities, along with readiness and people, as the 28th chief of the National Guard Bureau, is innovation. Also, they've recently announced that there's going to be a launch of a Space Force. Putting two and two together, is there a Space Guard in the near future, General? Can you tell us anything about that? Or what role, if any, the Guard will play in the Space Force? Well, um, you know, let me just say this. First of all, um, whatever, uh, you know, the National Guard does in the future, it will be connected to space in some way. That's just the nature of what this domain is doing. You know, as, as, as military operations have changed... Um, it's kind of like cyber, you know, you, you may think you're not in the cyber world, but we all sit there and we use cyber and networks and the like every single day. So it's an impossibility that our future force structure in the National Guard, whatever that looks like, whatever service it's in, is not somehow connected and utilizing, uh, the, the con, the components of a space force. Um, we have currently, uh, in the National Guard, um, you know, a, a relatively small amount of space, but space across the department is not hugely big in terms of infrastructure. So we have about a thousand people inside the National Guard that do everything from, you know, space control, uh, work uh, as augmentees and launch operations, uh, or, um, you know, as much as considered spaces sit in, in uh, ground-based mid-course defense uh, missile silos in the center of Alaska to protect us from incoming uh, ICBM threats. So all of that kind of considered space folks. Um, you know, what the ultimate space force looks like, where it's located, um, has not been determined. And there's a, there's a way to go and what that is. But, you know, I think that our mission sets for sure 
uh, will definitely be connected uh, to the Space Force. And so innovation, you know, it's it's part of everything we do as as part of the chief. We're as part of my priorities. It's it's tried to find um, you know some new new ways to use old things. How is it that we can uh, adapt and transform ourselves to uh, be a more ready force, a more lethal force, be a better contributor to the Army and to the Air Force? And you know, we've looked inside our our staffs, and some of that is in recruiting. And how can we train more innovatively and We've looked at training models that states have options to is, you know, should we move to something different than a weekend, a month and two weeks a year? Would would four 10 day blocks be better kind of a training model for us to look at? So we're trying to look across the enterprise to say, how can we take the most precious commodity our our guardsmen have, which is time, their access to them, to train them, to integrate with them and make a more ready lethal force and and so we have a lot of a lot of people working on that, and it's uh it's it's a lot of time. It takes up a lot, a lot of our a lot of our thoughts and what we do in the National Guard Bureau these days. As far as where Space Force is located, seems simple to me. We need a base on the moon. Obviously, that's where the Space Force should be based out of. <laughs> We've been speaking with General Joseph Langell, 28th Chief of the National Guard Bureau. General, you just mentioned recruiting again. Let me ask you as we finish up here: 17, 18, 19 year old comes up to you and says, "Hey, why should I join the National Guard?" What do you tell that person? Well, I tell them, uh, you know, first of all, being part of uh, the military has been kind of the most satisfying uh, thing in my in my life. I mean, you you will do more, see more, uh, feel like you accomplish more, given the opportunity to achieve more than any other program out there that that I can think of. It's it's enormously uh, satisfying to work in this environment on such a such a competent, dedicated, motivated team. But there's lots of reasons to do, to do it. If you if you're thinking about wanting to get training in some high tech, um, you know, uh, sector of our community, we provide we provide training in cyber. We provide training in space. We provide training in aviation. If you want to be a pilot, that's a, it's a good way to do it. Um, you know, sometimes many many states have tuition reimbursement for if you want to go to college and you're willing to trade some of your time and serve in the National Guard, you know, you can go to college uh, for free uh, so long as you decide to. Uh, serve inside, uh, you know, your National Guard in your state. States will pay your tuition um, for you to to go to uh, be a member of the National Guard, and then they, you will earn, you know, National Guard paychecks as you're going through your your guardsmen. We have we have a very highly educated force. I was just down in Florida, and I always one of my favorite questions to ask of these E3s and E4s who are out there serving is, so what do you do in your real life? And uh, be away from the military and and so many of them tell me I'm I'm finishing up my degree in biology or I'm finishing up my degree in computer science or I'm I'm uh, I'm going to school sir and you know I want to be a lawyer and um you know the opportunity to serve in the National Guard and then attain your personal educational goals for the long term is uh is something worthy of considering for anybody I know so many people that start their civilian lives as I was walking into her in here to CBS, someone told me they she learned her editing skills as a public affairs member in the National Guard, and then CBS hired her away. So wow. I think that's a, that's a great thing to talk about um, when you look at opportunities and just the reason to serve. And it is just it is so much fun to be a part of this team. It's been really this, a huge joy in my life. We've been speaking with General Joseph Langell, 28th Chief of the National Guard Bureau. Sir, thank you so much for your time today. And one last question. If people want to find out more about the National Guard and Air National Guard, where do they go to do so? Well, we have a National Guard website that uh, they can Google, you know, nationalguard.com, and that will take you there. 
Um, 1-800-GO-GUARD, I believe, is another recruiting number for us uh, to do it. Um, and, um, you know, I think that uh, I would encourage anyone to look up National Guard on their websites. Uh, go see a recruiter. Be part. If you want to be part of a community-based force, I, I would ask you to say consider um, going to your National Guard recruiter. And uh, if you want to serve in the active component, you want to serve anywhere around the world, I, I fully support that, too. And if you do that for a while and then you want to come back to your community, we'll take you <laughs> back when you're done. I'll still take you, Eric, if you want to come back and finish up seven more years after 13 years of serving in the Navy. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> General Joseph Langell, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Eric. I enjoyed it. You know, it is not every day that you get to talk to a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, particularly one who's so forthcoming and is uh, willing and able to answer uh, any question that you have. You know, I didn't have to submit questions ahead of time because, well, I don't do that ever, really. Um, just getting those honest answers to questions that, you know, he wasn't necessarily prepared for, although as a four-star general, they're really prepared for anything, aren't they? Let's be honest, but getting those, uh, those straightforward answers from him, uh, really, really nice and really good to hear that the national guard is focused on uh, the families, not just on the soldiers and airmen serving in the guard and air national guard, but the families as well. And that's something that when we talked to Senator David Perdue of Georgia, he said he had noticed from going around to places like, you know, Fort Benning and talking to the military families there, finding out from the soldiers and airmen, Marines and sailors in Georgia that part of the reason that it would be difficult for them to stay in was their families uh, were being put through the ringer by op-tempo, by oh-so-many things. And for the National Guard, it's similar but different because you can have people activated and called up for a year-long deployment. You can also have people pulled away from their families for weeks at a time to uh, deal with natural disasters like Hurricane Michael and Hurricane Florence. And how cool was it there that General Lengel gave a shout-out to our own Guard member, Kayla Jackson, from the ConnectingVets.com team. When that happened, I cut that audio out of there and uh, sent it to her immediately. And she got a kick out of that. But the fact that they, they understand this is a big key and that they are working to try and you know, make life easier for the family members and, to some extent, for, of course, the Guard members themselves. I mean, the life of a member of the United States Armed Forces is never going to be easy by most definitions of that word. Only easy day was yesterday, right? The fact that they're working to try and streamline everything, they're also working to get employers more on board, particularly in states where there aren't really any protections for Guard members there. You know, there are states where the employer doesn't need to pay them while they're gone for their two weeks. And, and that makes sense if you're not being uh, if you're not being, um, oh, what do you call it? Uh, if you're not doing work for the company, then why should they pay you? Especially if the National Guard is paying you during that time. There are some some places that will pay you even while you're there. Of course, if you're salaried or something like that. And then you have the uh, the the other issues of employers who uh, look at the National Guard as a negative when they're looking to hire someone like, oh, we're going to lose you for two weeks a year and then you could be gone for a whole year. That's another thing that the Guard has to deal with that none of the other branches of service do. And I mean, for obvious reasons, that's part of what the Guard's job is, that they do things like that. And they are the citizen soldier, even more so than our active duty military. It puts them in an interesting position where they are, you know, they've got one foot in the veteran world, really. And one foot in the active duty world. 
Think about it. They're working in the civilian workplace that someone like me who enlisted at 18 and got out at, how old was I, 31, 32, something like that. I had never really worked in the civilian corporate uh, job place. My only jobs prior to joining the military, let's see, I worked at Boston Chicken. Before it was Boston Market, it was called Boston Chicken. And then I think they might have actually changed while I was there, but I digress. Uh, I worked there, and then I worked uh, down at the docks at a yacht club in the city of Stanford, where I'm from. Um, and that was it. That was my civilian work experience, other than you know going to work for my dad every once in a while on the weekends, cleaning up around construction sites. Uh, it's something that I was first exposed to when I got out of the military and really when I got out of college because I went to school on the GI Bill and then I get out and and thankfully I had a job before I even graduated. But a lot of people don't. Um, The Guard members, they are dealing with both at the same time. I can't imagine dealing with going to college or dealing with looking for work uh, full time while also dealing with, you know, doing a weekend a month and two weeks every year. And then the possibility of being called up for a deployment. And how do you tell your employers about that? Uh, It's really a unique aspect of the military, the National Guard. And the general spoke to that, of course. Um, And it's one that is extremely important. And as he said, is going to become more important, according to the Secretary of Defense, in the coming years. So, Uh, Good to see that they're ahead of uh, some of these issues that are going to come up and become even more prevalent as the Guard takes on more missions, as the Guard uh, develops into what they're going to become, and as part of the Space Force even. Now, why General Langell did not agree with my logical assessment that Moon Base One needs to be where the Space Force is based out of, I can't tell you. I mean, obviously, maybe they've got a plan for putting one on Mars or something like that. I don't know. Maybe that's why we sent those rovers there. Yeah, they're just they're, they're like a forward scout team. They're 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 like the Rangers going in there to lead the way. Speaking of the Rangers, and we were just talking about Fort Benning, Georgia recently. The 75th Ranger Regiment, my cousin Tom, served in the 2nd Battalion of the 75th Ranger Regiment. So, uh, you know, love those guys. And, of course, we've had many Regiment Rangers, the Bat Boys on the show, like Griff from Combat Flip Flops and so on. They have won the U.S. Army International Sniper Competition. You would think that would be the lead story, right? Because you had Naval Special Warfare Group 1 taking part in it. You had, uh, you know, Special Forces Units, First Special Forces Group uh, for the Army. So the Green Berets, they were involved in it as well. The 75th Ranger Regiment Snipers came in first out of, well, geez, how many teams were there total? I'm trying to see. I'm trying to see if they are there. Okay, we see 30 teams listed. And it is international. Now, we have a lot of American units in there. I mean, Oregon Army National Guard finished 27th. Third ID from Fort Stewart finished in 30th. They were uh, the lowest <coughs> lowest ranked of the 30 teams. 10th Mountain Division, climb to glory, eh, more like climb to the bottom third. They were 23rd <laughs> in the sniper competition. You've also got New Zealand finished in 21st. You've got the Netherlands 42nd Battalion uh, finished in 26th. 101st Airborne, the German Infantry Sniper School, they tied for 17th. 2nd Battalion Rifles from England were in 16th. Uh, Really, a truly international flavor here. Obviously, uh, our allies, we weren't inviting our enemies. You know, there's uh, there's, there's no teams in here from... 
Let's see, I'm, I'm making sure before I look down. There's no teams in here from anybody who could even be considered uh, not a close ally. But here's the big story, at least as it's being reported by Marine Corps Times. So the Marines pride themselves on their shooting ability, right? Every Marine is a rifleman. Gunny Hathcock, perhaps the greatest sniper in United States military history. I think there are a lot of people who would say that he is. Uh, there are some people who would say that it's some other guy. I don't know. But Gunny Hathcock, he's a guy who literally wrote the book on being a sniper. <laughs> he's wrote a couple books on it, I believe. So the Marines take that very seriously. Well, here's a question that I would posit to you, dear listener. If you were to think about the Coast Guard and their sniping ability, where would you rank them in terms of the United States military's overall sniper rankings? Well, the 75th Ranger Regiment, I already told you, they finished first in the U.S. Army International Sniper Competition. The first Special Forces group, the Green Berets, they weren't even top five. They finished 14th. Oh, no, sorry. They finished 11th on the list. I don't want to give them the wrong space, and I want the Green Berets coming after me because 11th in an international sniper competition means you can kill me from very, very far away, so please don't. Naval Special Warfare Group 1, the SEALs out in San Diego, they finished in 25th. So think about that. Green Berets and SEALs, guys who undertake sniper missions very regularly. I mean, think of Tim Kennedy, a former uh, uh, and future guest of the show, Green Beret sniper. He's a guy who spends an insane amount of time on the range perfecting his craft. His compatriots in the First Special Forces group finished 11th. 11th. Who finished second behind the 75th Ranger Regiment? The Colorado Army National Guard. Third, the Swedish 17th Wing Air Force Rangers. Then you got 82nd Airborne Division, Wisconsin Army National Guard. Where's, where's the Marine Corps in here? I know you're wondering because I already brought it up. Uh, then you have the 3rd Princess Patricia Canadian Light Infantry in 6th place. Montana National Guard in 7th. Jutland Dragoon Regiment, Regiment from Denmark in 8th. And then in ninth place, and this is the big story from Marine Corps Times. You'll understand in a moment. In ninth place, the United States Coast Guard Special Missions Training Detachment. In tenth place, United States Marine Corps Scout Sniper Instructor School. Yes, you heard that right. The Marine Corps Scout Sniper Instructor School, the legendary school where snipers like Gunny Hathcock were trained, finished behind the Coast Guard. This is the second second year that the Marine team has been beaten by the Coast Guard. In 2017, the Corps did a little bit better, but I believe it was the year before that uh, in, uh, in 2016 that the Coast Guard was ahead of them. The last time the Marine Corps actually won the competition was in 2009. Uh, Sergeant Joshua Husky and Sergeant Grant Royal from the Camp Pendleton Sniper School won it. But it's been nine years now since they won. Listen. The difference between first place and 30th place on this is probably, what, an inch? I mean, these are these are all world-class shots. These are people who know how to shoot. Uh, you know, it may have been a, a better day for somebody. There may have been just a tiniest gust of breeze that came up that threw something off. But for the second time, the United States Coast Guard Special Missions Training Detachment has bested the United States Marine Corps Scout Sniper Instructor School. I, there are Marines out there tearing their hair out of their head. What little hair they have for those high and tights. They're using tweezers to grab little <laughs> little bits of hair out of there to pull it out to the Coast Guard. Because really, how many of us even think about the fact that the Coast Guard has snipers? 
I only knew it because I've seen the, the last time that the Coast Guard beat the Marine Corps where it made it into a news story. Yeah, I've, I'd seen that. But it's not something that we normally associate with the Coast Guard. What do you associate with the Coast Guard? Well, if you're a recreational boater, I'm sure you associate them with coming over to do uh, life preserver checks and things like that. Aids to navigation teams, which are the ones who are in charge of the buoys and making sure that if they move, they're put back, they're clean, they're using, they're in proper working order. Uh, lighthouse, taking care of the lighthouses. It's kind of the day-to-day stuff of the average Coast Guard unit. Then you also have the drug interdiction um, mission of the Coast Guard, predominantly in the Gulf of Mexico and the South uh, South Atlantic Ocean and also on the Pacific Ocean near the California border as well. Uh, snipers. Where would the Coast Guard use snipers? That's a question that you might ask yourself. Well, I imagine in those drug interdiction um, missions that there are some highly armed fellows that they're dealing with. We know that the drug cartels, it's a lot of money. It's big business, and they are well-armed. So that's something where the Coast Guard might need a sniper. Also, if there were ever some sort of incursion into U.S. waterways by an enemy force and the Coast Guard were the first on the scene, you'd want them to have every ability. So this is the Coast Guard Special Missions Training Detachment. So essentially, uh, like a special operations force within the Coast Guard that's less known than any of the others, less known than, say, the Green Berets or Delta or SEALs or the Ranger Regiment. It's less known, but it's still there. And remember, the Coast Guard, the smallest by far of all of the armed forces, of course, falls under the Department of Homeland Security, typically. The smallest by far, and part of what that means is that they are elite. Remember, we talked to author Mike Cole, who had served in the Coast Guard, also as a TV star and everything. So by definition, the United States Coast Guard is elite. They are the most selective service. And that's true. I think back to when I was working in recruiting public affairs and all of the service public affairs officers for recruiting in the area of Jacksonville, Florida, all of us that had North Florida, South Georgia, we were all based uh, near in and around Jacksonville, I should say. We wanted to get together and meet and kind of compare notes and see how we might be able to help each other. And the Coast Guard, <laughs> the Coast Guard guy, first off, it was like a side job for him. For all of uh, all the rest of us in the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, it was our full-time job. For him, it was like a, an additional duty, and he had no interest in it because they didn't need to share notes. They didn't need any help from anybody. Their, their recruiting offices, I don't know if I ever saw one open. In the three years that I worked in recruiting public affairs where I'd travel out to, you know, those armed forces recruitment centers where you have the all the branches together in the same place in their own little offices, the Coast Guard ones were never open. Never open. And I'm not exaggerating. I do not recall ever seeing one that was open. In fact, when I was trying to figure out who to talk to about setting up this meeting after me and my Army counterpart had had a discussion about it, I went to a Coast Guard uh, recruiting station, and it was closed. So I went the next day, closed, next day, closed, next day. They were closed four days in a row, and I stopped going. (laughs) That's because, again, they are able, because of their smaller size, to be very selective. The Coast Guard Academy is actually the most difficult of the service academies to get into from what I've been told from representatives from the other service academies. They have the smallest class size by far, and they have a ton of people who want to get in because 
there are a lot of things that you learn as a Coast Guard officer and that become available to you when you're talking about like military sea lift command, all sorts of other maritime jobs that you might want to do that it really prepares you for. It's a top flight education, beautiful setting in New London, Connecticut. Yeah. So anyway, congratulations to the Coast Guard and uh, <laughs> whatever, I guess whatever the opposite is of congratulations to the Marine Corps, because man, they can't be happy about being bested by the Coast Guard again. <laughs> You've been listening to the Morning Briefing Tuesday edition. We'll be back tomorrow. We're going to talk to Aaron Chili Childress. He's going to be on the show tomorrow talking about some new work he's doing with the American Freedom Fund and also about his path from the Marine Corps to social media and TV star and beyond. Thanks a lot for listening. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 